For gifts that give back this holiday season, check out our favorite woman-owned jewelry company, Bird and Stone. Every purchase donates 10% to the causes that you care about, like women's health, in partnership with Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off with code HARPERS at birdandstone.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In the December issue, Michael Denzel Smith considers the limits that white gatekeepers working at prestige outlets, such as the New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, and this magazine, put on discourse about blackness and race. Smith, who has established himself during an era of online publishing, describes how his career has, at many points, been defined by explaining black pain to his largely white audiences. Rather than reconsidering systems of power and aspects of black life, precious space and attention is spent on the act of translation and catching up. I was joined by Smith to discuss the dire need for structural critiques of identity, history, and the news media, and the current shortcomings of our clickbait-driven discourse, even when it is intersectional. I wanted to talk about the response to your article mm-hmm. because I've noticed this when talking to people from previous generations mm-hmm. about issues of racism, sexism, homophobia. There is sometimes a resistance to arguments that have to do with structure, mm-hmm. like structural problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also like a huge part of the black arts movement was like community, community, community. Mm-hmm. So what what has your experience with the response been? Yeah, so I'm glad you bring that up because that's sort of the the whole idea for me was getting into that because I've, I mean, I've read through a number of these like black public intellectual essays that have been published for so long, right? And the focus has always been on either uh, when it's like sort of a profile of what the new class of black public intellectuals look like. It's it's oh, this is what they, they're doing. Aren't they shiny and new and like interesting for us to look at and gawk at? Or it's like the black public intellectual sort of taking black public intellectuals to task for mm-hmm. saying, like, you're falling short on your duties, you're doing the blah, blah, blah. The evolution of the essay was me taking a step back to say, like, okay, I myself have had these critiques of black public intellectuals and I've, I've looked at and disagree with the work and stuff. But my interest then became so why is it that all of these people i can sort of pinpoint that uh, my my issue sort of stems from the way in which they conceive of audience and who they're talking to and that is a structural issue like there's no getting around that that all of us doing this work uh are up against the fact that there's not that many people who look like us mm-hmm. <laughs> in the positions of power and who are saying that a black audience is a valuable one. So, I mean, the essay getting at that was, was the entire point. And I think I've been happy with the response in that so many of the folks that I was talking about 
so many of the people who could relate to this issue are saying this is dead on this mm. is exactly what my experience of this has been and then for people who are sort of on the other side of it uh reading saying oh wow this is what all of like my favorite black writers are up against and this is i mean it's so true that it feels like they're they're like dumbing it down in some respect because they're having to do sort of this one-on-one education of the audience before they can even jump into anything else and then it's interesting like seeing and hearing from like the white gatekeepers mm -hmm. uh, who are like wow um i mean there's there's a mention in my essay uh, about a essay that michael eric dyson wrote for the new republic mm -hmm. a few years back and the editor of that essay is still at the New Republic and I've been working with him on some stuff and he emailed me and he's like, I assigned that, I conceived of that essay, <laughs> now I have some things to think about because of yours. And so so getting sort of white gatekeepers to like understand that th their role in this and to know the limitations of their own imagination and thinking and what constraints that's imposed on black writers and thinkers, um, I've been really happy with uh, the way that it's, it's provoked those sort of thoughts in people. The heart of the essay is the recognition that being a public intellectual is it's like a marketplace mm -hmm. and there is a demand for certain writers based on certain topics that has everything and nothing to do with the writing mm -hmm. a lot of the time yeah. the online marketplace if we're going to continue that mm -hmm. analogy sometimes flattens what that outrage means mm -hmm. and so that everybody is just as mad about like a marvel movie as they are about somebody being shot by the police. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this larger question of the people who don't participate in this market. They aren't following the nation. They don't treat the New York Times as gospel. Mm -hmm. But they're still having their opinions sort of shaped by other things mm -hmm. that are going on in their lives. So it's like, is there, in this sort of radical reformation of what public intellectualism is, is there a way to sort of get those people in? Because they seem very underserved. I mean, that's the hope. That's that's my hope. Uh, is that so? To me, I can like I conceive of this essay as sort of like the the parting shot for me to all anyone that wants me to write for them. It's like I the thing that I'm naming here. I'm not doing that anymore, right? I'm not available for to respond within 24 hours to the latest shooting of the you know most recent young black person, right? Like. I don't have anything else left to say about that for a white audience to digest, right? Like, I, I feel like if I've said it this number of times already, like, and you don't get it, what more am I doing, right? right? Um, well, and also recognizing that it's ridiculous that the onus of proving humanity is on right. black people. Like, exactly. that's ridiculous. Right. Like, we all should recognize yeah, right. it's ridiculous. Exactly. Um, and so with that, what I'm saying is that I am now personally freeing myself up to imagine new avenues for me to explore and that taps into exactly what you're talking about the people who they're not they're not following like what like new york times op-ed is like angering whoever they're not it's it's not about uh you know someone said something stupid on cnn whatever it is there's something there about the exploration of our culture and our politics and like doing it 
in a, a much more meaty way um, that I'm interested in doing now. Having started my career doing the other thing, I, mm-hmm. I, I want to step away from that completely. I want to give myself the freedom to explore my own intellectual curiosities. Uh, and I think that that's possible. One, there has to be sort of a reckoning within the industry around like who the gatekeepers are. Uh, there needs to be resources allotted to folks who are who exist outside of sort of our mainstay institutions to be able to build new institutions. And there has to be a desire on the part of the writers and the editors and everyone to give space for that work and like I'm saying I'm trying now to give myself space for that work because that audience is out there that wants to engage that Um, and so we can bring them in like we can serve them it's Mm -hmm. possible Uh, we don't have to continue the clickbait we don't have to continue like the rage stuff like it's okay to think outside of that well I mean it's funny that like there's sort of this outraged now that you know mm. oh everything has been so dumped down and blah 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 and it's like well it has been like this yeah. is an uh, this is a historical this yes. is where this shit leads like yes. of course yes. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course you're gonna get donald trump absolutely. um you know this question of the marketplace and getting something sustainable that mm-hmm. is sort of meteor or getting anything to be sustainable is kind of a very difficult proposition yeah. because journalism is in a very tight spot right now (laughs) you know so like in a perfect world how would this sort of take place is it something that is more like government the question is not just like oh we need to get more writers it's a question of we need to rethink this entire structure yeah I guess what um I see that I wish were available to folks who are like marginalized right like the essay is about black intellectuals but it's applicable to so many different groups right Mm -hmm. what i wish were available is the idea of uh, a niche publication right i think as tough as it all is in in like across media across journalism there's a way in which like a new york times exists and atlantic exists and then you have smaller magazines that can do experimental stuff and like can be niche and like speak directly to a very specific audience, right? Not they don't last all the time, right? Like I'm not trying to say that they, that we exist in that perfect world where all of these things are completely sustainable, but they're at least given a shot, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think like that's the problem is like speaking to an audience that uh, has traditionally been undervalued Mm -hmm. uh, or perceived to be non-existent is to say we're not even going to attempt it. And so I would like the attempt to be made to say people who are interested in a wider breadth of black intellectual work, like, like, and I mean, that encompasses so many different things, but like just that you could find that work altogether, right? That like, like I know people who you know, Ten House is closing down, but who published in Ten House, but then like have published in The Believer, and then have published in Paris Review, and it's like that's great, but why is all of that black intellectual energy being diffused in so many places? And I'm like saying this, having written this essay for Harper's, right? And I address that in the essay, but that's exactly what I'm saying is that that I'm not I'm not 
dismissing or saying like I don't ever want to write for these places ever again with these white gatekeepers but I'm saying the option's not even on the table for me to do anything differently right and to be visible yeah there are so many different things right Mm -hmm. that are going right now I was talking to somebody at party and he was like well I don't even know what like a trustworthy source is Mm -hmm. at this point and it's not it's not like a Russian meddling shit like it's it's like a real because when Donald Trump says fake news when he calls CNN fake news he's not wrong like CNN is bad and you know what the New York Times really went hard for the Iraq war so maybe they (laughs) kind of did this shit to themselves there is clearly a need to change course with how this industry operates Mm -hmm. and clearly part of that is going beyond being like hey, please don't kill this boy who is carrying yeah. Skittles. Like, it has to go beyond that. It has to. Because when, you know, talking about this, it's not just like sort of uh, an in, in the inside industry thing, right? Like, these are public services that we're supposed to be uh, upholding. And we are doing a disservice to the public. Like, in every sense, like, no matter who you include in public, we're doing a disservice to the public by rehashing these things over and over again by saying the same shit over and over (laughs) again we are doing a disservice to the public we are not challenging anyone anywhere and then we wonder why things still look the same it's because we have not played the role that we're meant to play the tendency for again we're talking about gatekeepers here the tendency for gatekeepers to feel oh well we're left-leaning more like center left. Mm. And we need to get a contrarian voice in here because it's really important to hear all sides. And um, if we hear all sides, then our opponents, who definitely have an opinion, Mm. very clear what their opinion is, they can't attack us because we have a Brett Stevens. We have a Bari Weiss. Here's the thing. What's contrarian about them? Exactly. Right? Like what are they pushing against? What are they trying to get us to consider differently? Right. They are literally spokespeople for the status quo. Yes. Right. Like, like that is what is contrarian about them. And I think that that's like sort of born of a sense of like media being like it's true. Like media folks are in somewhat of a bubble. Right. Yeah. Like if you genuinely believe that because all of the people that you run into are like ostensibly left-leaning then you think that the contrarian viewpoint is like a barry weiss or a brett stevens you think that that's pushing you in some some like really intellectual way that you haven't considered all the viewpoints right no the the reason that i i think for me at least that you sit on the left is because you have sat with the the like contrarian which is really status quo viewpoint you understand it so well already that you understand that it's bullshit right um it's saying essentially that the real value of an intellectual debate is can i convince someone whose worldview is wholly opposite of mine right and simply put, no, you won't. No. Right? Like, <laughs> you're not going to. Like, that is not an interest of mine. What I'm interested in is how do we amass power to defeat that view, that worldview? There can be interesting debates happening with people who claim the same 
objectives, right? Yeah. Because now we're talking about the nuances of how do we achieve it and like what exactly are we achieving, right? Like there's a debate to be had in that space. But like what the point of that debate is, is not like, can I win over someone who's going to continue to be my opponent? And I think that that's another sort of like American thing in which we just like, everyone is entitled to their opinion as long as everyone is heard like yeah. that's the that's the end end of it like that's the most important thing and one like everyone's not involved in that right like the official record like paper of record and like magazines of record do not make room for all of the voices right like there is no Marxist on the New York Times op-ed page. Right. There's right? no pro-Palestine <laughs> there, person. Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. And so then you're saying the, the actual legitimate voices are those on the like center left because they sit closer to a like status quo or right wing position and that they're the serious person in the room because they're willing to compromise, right? right. Like they're willing to compromise with this other p- viewpoint. And the other serious voice is the status quo right wing voices. Like they need to be heard because suddenly we're, we're of the belief that they represent like real Americans, heartland Americans, right? Like the, the core of like what the American identity is. And that's setting us up to reinforce that status quo over and over again, because everyone within the, the confines of that debate is going to like at baseline agree about their needing to be a curbing of like our radical impulses or what have you like well why is it not legitimate that i believe that you know we should not spend this much on military like right. why why do i have to say well of course we need national defense like why why, why of I, course why 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 is that of course right like why yeah. is that not a question of exactly. the of course part of that right yeah. like why is this de- why does the debate around Donald Trump's wall get people to saying, well, we have to enforce the border? Why is why do we have to? Oh, like, I know. And that's the like, and if you don't open it up for other voices within within the context of the debate, then you don't ever question the baseline sort of assumptions and biases. Yeah, I mean, just when Nancy Pelosi was getting yelled at by Donald Trump and she was saying exactly that, that, Mm -hmm. well, of course we need border security, but, and Mm -hmm. it's like, well, I mean, on one hand, of course she would say that because she's been in power for so long and she's clearly fine with everything being the way it is and she helped set up that system. But on the other hand, that she would, that's the extent of the pushback is so grotesque it is and grotesque. That, that's the and that's considered the reasonable and serious position right right like that is, like because if you are talking about the elimination of borders you're not a serious person yeah it's not a serious position to hold it's something childish like you should outgrow it yeah. why is that why do we have to accept that why can't there be a serious intellectual project that tells you about a world without borders right because clearly, you know, those on the right really don't have a problem feeling like, oh, that's too extreme. 
And there are certainly people they will dig out of the war, you know, they being newspapers, media, they will yeah. dig out of the woodwork and say, well, I think Donald Trump went too far this time. And I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a real conservative and I don't like this. And it's like, I'm sorry, most big R Republicans, they're fine. They're fine being thrown in with like white supremacists. They don't oh, give yeah. a shit. They don't care about you know, you show them like a the Jordan Peterson rock of their ide ideology. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like you show them, you show like any or sort of like the radicalization going on on YouTube. And it's like, well, yeah, it is radicalizing a lot of people, but it's not that far from home a lot of the time. No, I mean, it is home. Yes. Right? It <laughs> is home for them. And it's what used to be is that they put a sheen on it. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean. Lee Atwater gave the game away. Right? Like he gave it away. Yes. And it's just now that we're seeing for for the people that constitute that base, it wasn't enough anymore. Right. That was the problem. Like that the Tea Party just had enough, right? Once and you know, I will critique Barack Obama for the rest of my life, but yeah. once Barack Obama became president, for those folks, that became too much for them to handle yep. they were saying we are losing the country because you won't say it because mm -hmm. you won't say it out loud you won't say who he is right you you're you're running a john mccain and john mccain's awful but also he won't just like come out and say he's a muslim kenyan terrorist like he won't say it so what they they i mean the next time around they got mitt romney like the establishment republicans yep. like gave it one last swing but then the tea party's like that's it. We're getting we're getting our guy in there this time because Donald Trump started it yep. by saying Mexicans were rapists. And they're just oh, yeah. like, that's what we've been waiting for. Oh, that's what that. So it's been home. It's just that before they wanted to, like, give into the American impulse to politeness and right yep. like that polite sense of bigotry. <laughs> so let's talk about that tendency for politeness. Donald Trump is a bad president. He's a worse president than George W. Bush because he's just he has no style mm. and he's so grotesque and he yeah. and it's like yes, but there's a lot of reasons why that's not true and if we weren't so wrapped up in this question of like civility and respectability that we could sort of push things towards a more a real, like what is really going on but then also not ignoring the fact that identity does matter and it impacts people in different like who who you are impacts your access to many different things and your experience of the world right yeah but remember when george w bush was the stupid president yes right i do <laughs> i remember when that I was, so was mad at him. the case right like he was the buffoon like yeah. he couldn't get the axioms right with the you know and now I say that to say, like, it's not even a matter of, like, like Donald Trump not performing it correctly. Like, it, it is partly that. But there's also a desire to uh, wax nostalgic for the past because the past is more comfortable than the present, right? Of course, like, yeah. The American project is constantly remaking that past America, right? Like to say that there's something more civil about that era, about past eras than than us, because like somehow we're we're falling down on the job, right? Like we have uh, squandered our inheritance, but but 
really all that has happened is the thing has been continued in a way that you like now disapprove of because it's different like literally just because it's different right it's just wrapped in a different package so it's like george hw bush dies and so many people like ross duthat is pining for the the age of the wasp or right. whatever and it's like that didn't go anywhere right like it has no. not gone anywhere all that it is is that you know Donald Trump comes in and like says all the things out loud that you guys just didn't say out loud before. He says the loud part soft and yeah. the soft part loud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so so it's just to me like the the issue is more of a dishonesty about the past, right? Because to lie about the past means that there's something to go back to as opposed to building a project for the future, which is much more difficult. <laughs> yeah, to completely re-envision something is, yeah. yes. What would a proper reckoning with the past, like I can't help but think of when Starbucks, all the Starbucks closed down and they're like, we're going to deal with racism. And it's like, well, when's America going to shut down for a day? We're going to deal with this shit. <laughs> I mean, that's, it was hilarious to me that they're going to shut down for a whole, like half a day. They shut down for half a day. And then they were just like, we're going to have like a video from Common to like help us understand what racism is. Um and, but that, but see, this is the thing. Like, that's such an American thing to do. Totally. It's so, we will pacify the idea that we need to address the issue by doing a half-assed job of it. Yes. Like, <laughs> and, and, and papering over any of the actual systemic issues, right? Like, the idea from Starbucks is let's tell our employees not to be racist. Right. right, like to be polite to all of, but that does not address all of the 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 conditioning that they have had socially and politically that enters into their their perception of who their customers are. Right, so that's what produces that moment where they're calling the police, and that does, and like I'm curious about how much of like an understanding of policing comes into that, right? Like in the history of policing, and I say that to say like. Um, how much reckoning needs to be done like so much right mm -hmm. and it has to I don't think it, it, do we have to understand that uh, a, a writer uh, named Daniel Older said this uh, when I saw him in Memphis he's like we've been lied to in so many ways we have to tell the truth in, in the just as many ways so it can't we can't act like oh, we changed our textbooks and suddenly, like, here's a here's a better America. Or we, like, changed the representation on nightly news and suddenly you have a better America. No, it, I mean, it has to happen in every facet of our lives, right? And that includes media and journalism, and that includes our education system, that includes our government, that includes every business that, that we have, right? Like, it includes everything everything it includes our social interactions and our social standings and and all of that like yes and all of those understandings of how his of how, of what history and all these facets of existing in public shapes our identity because many white people refer to themselves as being irish or german or italian or whatever and they consider that is a part of their identity but it is not 
you're not Irish in the way that people in Ireland are Irish because so much of what it actually means to be Irish has been completely systematically stripped away. And then to use that in an argument against immigrants who are trying to come here now and say, well, my ancestors came here legally. Or my ancestors worked hard and came here with nothing and now look at us. You come here and you... You're saying we're doing it the right way, we're doing it legally, but what was on offer to like Italians and and Irish and what like is not on offer to other immigrants if they could even get into the country. And then what discrimination did happen against those folks and like ghettoizing them and what have you? There's there's a whole period of progressive movement that says like this is the wrong way to treat people, and then like the government resources being deployed to ensure that they like they get better schools they get hospitals all of this stuff and then you get folded into whiteness because it is politically expedient for all of those wasps to say like well we're we have we don't we won't have numbers right, right to maintain the this the, the the monopoly of power that we have unless we fold we allow these people to come in and it's like well if you are like you get the Irish to be your police officers and suddenly they're white right? yes. like, because they're enforcing white power structures. And now like that Irish identity is, is gone. It is, dif it is diffused. It is now just a part of whiteness. And like, that's not available to me. Right. Understanding that while well, my ancestors worked hard, it's like, well, yeah, probably everybody's ancestors fucking worked hard. Because yeah. it was really hard to just it's live. It's really hard to do <laughs> and especially It's not if, posh for many people. Right, and especially if your ancestors were brought to the new world in order to perform labor, like extreme... Like to perform free labor, yes. yes. You yes. Probably, they probably worked really hard. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that, 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 that the advent of multi multiculturalism has been to say, like, well, let's put both experiences on the table. Let's mm -hmm. integrate, you know, let's have a more diverse curriculum. But clearly there's still this miscommunication going on about how those histories actually talk to each other. Yeah, there's a flattening of the power dynamics, right? It's to say like the multiculturalism is is just another way of like getting us to like accept just that there's like difference and like those differences just are inherent differences right like but that's not true right like our cultural differences are born out of our political realities right like and that that's not something anyone like that's not something that america writ large is trying to have a discussion about because the american dream is meant to tell you that anyone it's possible for anyone um and and then the embrace of multiculturalism says that we celebrate all of our differences but where do those differences come from like the difference comes from like the fact that this person could buy a home in this area and this person could not buy a home in this area. It comes from the fact that this person's ancestors were shackled, enslaved, and were property. And this person like came over as an immigrant poor, but there was a movement in like to get them resources, right? Like those differences matter and they matter to uh, to what we're we're trying to celebrate as part of like the melting pot and what have you but to to ignore or to downplay the political and economic reality 
of different groups and the ways in which they have been assimilated means that you're not having an honest discussion about that means that whatever problems then arise, you're not going to actually be able to reckon with. I heard you sort of defer this question in another interview, but Mm. I will ask anyway, if there was focus towards issues around black intellectual life, if you weren't burdened with, I have to translate what the black experience is for somebody so they can sort of understand and then I can get into my argument. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know what that looks like for me right now. Um, Like, I do have a bunch of ideas and stuff that I'm trying to pitch to people that I feel like is getting at something that I I want to be doing. But I just think about um, something like, uh, like, we're seeing this resurgence of interest in, like, socialism right now, right? Like, okay, that's great. But... The level of engagement with like black Marxist thinkers, where is that? Like, where does that exist? Um, and like, and in the like actual meat of what they're saying, and like not tokenizing and not like nitpicking and sort of using for your own event. Like, you know, like like let's actually get into what Cedric Robinson means when he says racial capitalism, right? Like, let's let's examine that. And does it have to be at the Boston Review? Like, I I mean, not no diss to the Boston Review, but like. Does that is that audience that's picking that up? Is that a like black socialist audience? Right. Like, I don't I don't know. Right. Um, and, and and so to me, that that then is a, a project of saying, like, if if there are people engaging with that work um, and it could be valuable to this audience, like how about finding that, that audience and presenting it to them? It's like we're we're facing climate like I mean, these are sort of like big real life issues. And like we could get into some more about like the the imagination sort of being stunted and like whatever, like we could do all of these creative things, like stuff that I'm thinking about now um, where I just want to do an essay. Uh, I've pitched this to Oxford American uh, about like being a Virginian and like my identity being shaped by Thomas Jefferson and Pharrell. Like Mm -hmm. I'm interested in writing this essay, right? Like (laughs) that thing would be fascinating to to dive into that. But uh, you know, but even like beyond that, I'm thinking about like, you know, what does, what does climate change look like um, for people? Like what would a Puerto Rican audience have to say about climate change right now in the wake of the hurricanes? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) it's like, yes, where is that? This problem seems to be sort of like this very sort of diffuse social era we are experiencing mm-hmm. because I know of a Puerto Rican uh, nonprofit that specifically deals with mm-hmm. those issues. But again, that's just because I went looking for that. That's right. not it's not like I turn on the television. I'm like, oh, there it is. Right. The mirroring of those things should take place more often because, again, like generationally speaking there are a lot of times where older white people don't want to admit hey these things actually go together Mm -hmm. there is no recognition and then it's like oh it's just identity politics and yeah but that's the thing like even when we say like oh yeah there's there's this puerto rican nonprofit doing stuff around climate change and whatnot when maria happened and all of the like 
Puerto Rican academics that are being called forth, where do they have to start? They have to start all the way at 101 to say, like, yeah. this is the roots of colonialism here. Like, we don't even have enough of, of a basis or, or, like, a baseline understanding in our, like, popular consciousness to not have to go that far back, right? And so then it's, if you got to go that far back before anyone can listen to you talk about what's what's happening in the present day, then that means we're never getting around to that because we got to argue about all of that other stuff back there. Yeah, yeah. And also be like, hey, did you know the U.S. owns Puerto Rico? Yeah, it's yeah, a we territory. Gotta, gotta, it's not a state. You got to argue over the fact <laughs> over the fact of its uh, being a colony, right? Yes, and yes. Then, then it's and like, it, are we a democratic nation if we have colonies? And it's just, you, <laughs> you're so many questions to, before you can even get to. Well, here is what the impact of like that status does when you have the infrastructure built as it is and the government at, like being dictated by a special commit like we can't get there right i feel like to go back to the marketplace idea for a second so much time and resources that public intellectuals have is being put toward marketing themselves as such rather than doing that harder work it's like you're not only a writer, but you're sort of marketing these. The, you you use marketing now yeah. as as part of your toolkit. Your brand. Yeah, exactly. And that you know, if like when Cornell West and Tanisi Coates got in an argument, that they have a whole ar- they have armies of fans behind them to say like, well, no, he actually meant this. You're wrong. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, but and then this whole. There's not a forward progress. It's just sort of like, well, that's my guy and I love him and I'm going to defend him. Yeah, that's what it came down to. That's exactly what that whole thing came down to was and like whatever debate that could have been teased out of it was simply like this is who Cornell West is. It's not not what Cornell West is saying. This is who Cornell West is. This is who Tanakasi Coates is. And I will debate you on the basis of who they are not what they've said on the course of this pseudo debate that wasn't really a debate right like I'm going to talk to you about who he is and what I believe him to be uh, because in order to survive in the marketplace like the 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 writer everyone has to be a brand you have to brand yourself and some people have to know what it is they're getting from you but when they see your name like oh they're headlining this event i know exactly who what they're going to say like even even though i know that like i still want it because like it feeds something in me right like when i and and like to be the writer like see my byline and know what kind of thought process you're going to get from me right like people don't want to be so surprised they want to know what it is that they're getting from this product and to to like view it as such means like that's what capitalism sort of demands of us um in so many ways but to to capitulate to that means that we're not resisting these forces the way that we need to in order to like get to the meat of what the intellectual work is supposed to be doing right like if it is supposed to be fomenting resistance and revolution like that's the role of the intellectual like that's the way that people see uh that that vocation capitulating to the market every step of the way and branding yourself in in such a way means that like 
you are doing a disservice to yourself as an intellectual in which like your work will always be one note but that means that when you present that work to the public you're doing a disservice to the public because that one note work is not helpful to any project that you would you would want to claim well thank you so much for coming on my pleasure You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.